Tracy Crouch, it is delightful to have you with me for 20 questions with. It is 20 questions, so I'll ask you 20 questions and try not to tweet, cheat, cheat. I'll try not to tweet while I do the interview as well, though that will not be a temptation because the reason I've asked you to do 20 questions with is because I find you fascinating. And I'm a sort of, I would say, gently left-leaning person, although I'm probably quite strident sometimes in applying my gentle left-wingedness. And you are a conservative and I enjoy your company. And I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by people I respect who have different views to me. So we'll try and get a little sense of your politics and we'll try and get a bit of a sense of you. But first of all, what is it like being Tracy Crouch? Well, I quite enjoy it. Um, I, I have never wanted to be anybody else other than me. So um, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and I, I try not to do things that I regret. So... Um, yeah, I, I like being Tracy Crouch. Do you enjoy life? I do, um, more so than ever before, actually. Um, my little brush, as I like to call it, with uh, breast cancer certainly gave me a renewed uh, lust for life. Um, and actually, um, it's a really weird thing to say, but I don't resent having cancer. I appreciate I can say that from a fortunate position, but it's actually made me prioritize the important things in life and right now I feel happier fitter and healthier than ever before so you know when something scary happens like a cancer diagnosis or something else that kind of shocks our system you you might at that moment say well look if I get better from this I'm really going to throw myself into life I'm going to really not so much throw myself into life because you 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 were obviously doing that anyway but I'm going to appreciate every day or every hour I'm going to really I'm not going to allow myself to be bored because you are you're you come face to face with the preciousness of life in the most graphic way has did that happen to you and has it sustained it yes it did although I do uh, occasionally like to be bored uh, because I think that you, you all need to just take time out of a busy life every now and then um, and just sit and lie on the sofa and look up at the ceiling. But um, uh, it's only made me reprioritize aspects of my life. I was very good anyway at prioritizing family. And I, um, other than Remembrance Sunday, I haven't really allowed myself to get sucked into constituency events at the weekend. Uh, in part, actually, because when I got elected, I coached a girls' football club and uh, football team. Sorry, uh, and we played on Sunday. So I've never there's never been an expectation for me to to give up large chunks of my weekend for constituency events. And now, even more so than ever before, I try and prioritise family engagements at the weekend. But it's also made me, you know, do the things that I wanted to do but never kind of got around to doing so I've signed up to climb Kilimanjaro in July because it's all one of those things that we all sit there and say oh I'd love to do that I'd love to climb Kilimanjaro and then you sort of kind of put it in the one day box and an opportunity has has arisen for me to do so and to raise money for breast cancer Kent so I thought sod it let's do it dipping into my savings in order to self-finance all the money raised goes directly to charity it's an expensive thing to do but hey at the end of well in the middle of august i'll be able to say i'll climb kilimanjaro i'll sponsor you oh thank you i'll make sure that we put the links up definitely i'll retweet now football was something i wanted to ask you about and i'm going to cheat i am going to cheat by trying to squeeze two questions into one first how good are you at football? And second part of the same question is, what did you learn from being the coach of a team or co- coaching a, a girls' football team? 
So I would say I'm okay at football. Um, what I does could, that mean? What does that mean? I, I can do keepy uppies. Um, <laughs> I can score goals. Uh, I'm not very good at defending. You know, I sort of kind of always used to get a nosebleed if I went back past the halfway line. But um, I'm a brilliant goal hanger. Got the goal, golden boot on quite a few um, seasons. I would have been much better if the structures that exist today existed when I was a kid. Bearing in mind, I was I didn't play a competitive game of football until I was 18. I played on the streets with the guys that lived on the estate. Wasn't allowed to play at school. They, there wasn't such a thing as girls' football clubs in my local area when I was growing up. You know, girls just didn't play football. It wasn't wasn't a thing. Um, so it wasn't until I went to uni that I actually competitively kicked a ball. But I'm I'm okay, right? I'm I'm I could have been better, but I'm fine. <laughs> um, I don't fall over. And in terms of um, what did I learn as um, coaching girls? I mean, I loved every minute of it. Uh, and I say that even with sort of kind of the harsh memories of having to put up goals in the middle of winter and clean sort of kind of frozen dog poo off pitches and everything else. Because the girls I was with, I I, I coached them from under 10s right up to ladies. And um, I saw them grow and develop. And so for me, there were memorable moments on the football pitch, but really it was about seeing some wonderful girls grow into wonderful women. And, you know, we were, we were all part of a team and I'm still very proud of them and what they achieved and what they continue to achieve as, as human beings. We'll work our way round to work. Uh, so by kind of turning this conversation on its head in a way, but tell us other things that you're passionate about and that you love doing or being a part of. I love my family. Uh, I love my cycling. Um, in fact, I get mocked at home because uh, I uh, I think about cycling all the time. <laughs> um, I think about ways of how I can get a couple of hours here and there to go out on my bike. Um, I find it a real freedom. And, you know, if I'm driving along in the countryside of Kent, you know, quite often my Litland, who's now seven, will look at me and it goes, Mama, you're thinking about cycling, aren't you? And I am. I'm like driving through these country lanes thinking, wow, this would be a great route. Um, so I love my cycling. I, I, I like reading. I like listening to music. I have a, an expanding vinyl collection. So, you know, just normal things, really. I developed a soft spot for Kent because my then girlfriend, now wife, was living in Kent when we started going out. And I want you to kind of sell the county to us. Because there are, it, it's not perhaps as soft-edged in its beauty as Sussex. It hasn't got the rolling hills of Wales or, or, or mid-Wales, which I know very well. But it has got orchards and it's got a coastline and it's very green. And there's something, a wonderful bluebell woods, there's something that's quite special about it. I think the thing about Kent is that it's it's a lot of everything into one county. So... You know, if you if you want culture, you've got art galleries, you've got theatres, um, you've got big music venues. If you want coastline, you have, you know, hundreds of miles of it. If you want green, there's the downs, you know. So, you know, there's a bit of everything uh, in Kent. It's, a, you know, relatively affordable um, compared to London, that is. Um, it's swift into town if you if you want to commute um it's got sort of kind of good connectivity you know there's lots to it I grew up on the coast of Kent and you know I love going back to Hythe I love walking along the coastline I love Dungeness Dungeness is one of my most favorite places in the world despite the fact that it is basically barren and and actually the worse the weather the more I love Dungeness 
Um, it sort of kind of really makes you feel alive, bizarrely. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Kent through and through and I couldn't see myself living anywhere else in the country, really. Is there something quite special about having been born in Kent and then being an MP representing constituents in the same county? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I always wanted to represent a Kent seat. I um I I did apply originally for Folkestone Hythe, which is where I grew up. It's it's where I cut my political teeth. It's where I got my experience. Michael Howard was and still is very much a mentor to me, but I wasn't selected. Uh, and in a way, that's that was a good thing. I think you know they the association had known me since I was sixteen. To them, I was still you know that little girl that came in and started delivering leaflets for Michael. Um, and I'm not sure I would ever, ever been able to have grown into, you know, the politician that I am today. Um, so, you know, when I walked into Chatham and Ellsford as part of the selection, it really felt like home. It was just one of those occasions where it felt absolutely right. You know, the people were very normal people, um, still are very normal people, uh, you know, sort of kind of called me Trace, uh, didn't stand on any airs and graces, um, you know, proper hard, hardworking, working class stories. I loved it. Exactly the same as me, really. We'll come to your Toryness in a little bit, but your husband is a your husband is a BBC Radio Kent presenter, is he not? Yep. Do you listen to him? Uh, yeah, I do when I'm not working. Um, and what's really funny is he's quite often a bit chopsy uh, and a bit cheeky, um, and sort of kind of correct, you know, throw it throws in the odd anecdotes and forgets that I might be listening so you know I can send in a text and then he sort of kind of like has to make some sort of kind of sheepish comment but that, that he'd forgotten that I was listening but you know he's well listened throughout the county and it's really weird because people come up to me and say oh I had this hilarious story or you know about you or about my son you know and sometimes like sometimes they're like really private stories and I'm like Hmm. Not sure people should know that about their local MP, uh, but hey, um, but, you know, he's it, he's quite funny. If you're not listening to your husband, and by the way, you got married to him quite recently, didn't you? Yeah, we've been together for a while. So Yeah, but if you're not listening to your husband, what radio station would you put on? So I'm a massive Chris Evans Virgin Radio uh, fan. Um, I love it, actually. Um, uh, I like to start my day listening to something fun and interesting i'm very much into the wellness agenda they they are hot on wellness and well-being um you know i listen uh, i learn a lot uh, about them i've just run a half marathon inspired in part by all their chit chat on on running and and how good it feels i'm not going to do a marathon though i'm not i'm not that insane um but uh, so yeah I, I listen to music um channels at the weekend, I'll listen to Five Live for the um, sport, but I definitely don't listen to the Radio 4 um, uh, Today programme. I listen to the comedy, but I don't listen to the Today programme. I don't listen to LBC in the morning. I like to start my morning, you know, in a really positive vibe. I don't want to start my day listening to people argue. Why are you a Tory, Tracy? So I grew up, I mean, you've got to remember how old I am, right? So um, I turned 48 this year. And I studied politics at A-level. I, I don't come from a political family. I mean, you know, my, my father, who's not with us anymore, wasn't political. My mother's never really been political. And uh, so I did politics A-level. I was very much able to decide what my own politics uh, was. And at the time, it was pretty much a straight fight between John Major and Neil Kinnock. 
And I think, you know, at that time when you're looking at your at your beliefs, you know, I was a um, a child from a single parent family who who was at grammar school, uh, and I was looking at a man who was from a single parent family who was at grammar school who had become prime minister, and I was very taken by his journey. I was very much sort of kind of taken by the one nation conservatism that he was a part of. I I, I wasn't a huge Thatcherite, so sort of kind of for me, one nation Tory, it was definitely sort of kind of more of my politics. And the choice was at the time, him, Neil Kinnock or Paddy Ashdown. And, you know, so I kind of put my nailed my my colors to the sort of kind of one nation Tory mast and and that's where I've been ever since have you wavered have you sometimes thought actually maybe I'd be better off in the Labour Party or in another party I can genuinely say no I've never wavered um I do think that had I been born 10 years later five years later then it would have it could have been a different outcome um, because I do see similarities in Tony Blair's New Labour and John Major's One Nation. I mean, it was actually a stroke of genius in many respects that Tony Blair was able to move the party into the centre like he did, and that John Major sort of kind of moved the party into that centre ground as well. And it was a battle of the centre ground in 1997 is the way I sort of kind of see it. But no, I've never wavered in terms of um, my sort of kind of ide- ideology, if you like, towards the Conservative Party. I would never switch to the Labour Party. And I do see it a little bit like the tribalism that you have in football. You know, you sort of kind of, I, I can, um, both you know, in both senses, I can see merits of the other side, but I would never support the other side. So, you know, I'm a long-suffering Spurs fan and I look at Arsenal at the moment and you sit there and, I mean, I don't hate Arsenal. I would never support Arsenal, but I can sit and think, yeah, you know, they've really got their stuff together. I was going to swear then, but I don't know if there's a, <laughs> an age limit on this. They've got their, their they've got their you know, stuff together and, and they're, they're flying. Uh, in the same way that I look at some of the things that New Labour did, and I just don't, I don't sit there and think, oh, just because it's new labour, it's all bad, right? In the same way that just because I'm a Tory, I don't think everything we do is brilliant. I just wouldn't support the other side, if that makes sense. Help me understand this. So in one of the final games of last season, Spurs played Arsenal at home in what was effectively a Champions League playoff game. And Spurs won Crushed. comfortably. <laughs> Crushed. How has it materialised? I've been to see Arsenal a couple of times this season. I've been to see Spurs three or four times. How is it possible that Spurs have had what I think a lot of Spurs fans would describe as a pretty awful season so far? They're, they're, they still might make the Champions League places. And Arsenal have gone from, in your words, being crushed by Spurs towards the end of last season to being quite possibly the Premier League champions. What, what is what What's happened? If I knew that, and if I was able to be sort of kind of, you know, football pundit extraordinaire I'd have Gary Lineker's job and salary right so I mean I think the thing is is that I you know I'm look I'm a long-suffering Spurs fan okay you know I, I I start every season sort of predestined to think the worst and yeah we're fourth in the table at the moment I think fourth. Yep. yeah yeah right. so clinging on to fourth clinging on to fourth 10 games to go we, we it's okay it's okay right we're not going to win it (laughs) but let's hope we are in well in Europe 
I mean, let's hope, right? We've still got a chance of being finishing outside at the um, the top six. Um, so I, I just, I don't know, right? We just haven't necessarily got the same consistency. We haven't got the same team camaraderie. Obviously, I saw our manager's rant at the weekend, which was extraordinary. But let's just hope we can cling on, as you say, to fourth. It's about to politics. I was going to say, that was a random... <laughs> I did wonder how you were going to bring it back. <laughs> you you introduced Spurs. I, I would have hoped to ask you about Tottenham anyway. But no, back to politics. Okay, so fine. You, you, you say genuinely that you would that you've never considered wavering and also that you never would change party, change allegiances. And I guess to, I guess the party system that we have in this country sort of relies on having people like you who simply would not move because that, I mean, you, you are the fabric of your party and the same on the other side. But is it not very difficult sometimes to toe the party line? And you have on occasion, haven't you, abstained or maybe even voted against the Conservatives. Yeah, more than one occasion. <laughs> I mean, it was one of the most sensible things that David Cameron did was to promote me to stop me from rebelling. Um, the um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't see it as, I, you know, I, I I don't see it as a bad thing if occasionally you stand up for what you believe in. Um, and um, you know, we're we're not this even as a Conservative MP, you're still not this homogenous being, this, you know, kind of robot that means that you just file through on everything. I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Conservative Party, in my view, is that it's a broad church. It allows you to have these complex differences uh, with each other. And, you know, it, it, it allows you to sort of kind of think of things like, Okay, take for example the um the, the the really hot topic at the moment of the, of the um of the boats bill, uh, the illegal boats bill. I feel very strongly about stopping the boats because actually I think it's an incredibly dangerous route into, uh, in into this country. I will be supporting the boats bill when it comes to Parliament next week, but at the same time I'll be supporting all the amendments that go down around creating safer routes. Yeah, because actually I have no issue with people wanting to come into this country um, seeking refuge. I want them to come via a safer route than the channel. And at the moment, the channel is just providing money for the traffickers. So I personally don't see that as a contradiction in my conservativeness of basically voting for something that some people think is, you know, absolutely outrageous and, you know, anti-immigration, but at the same time trying to provide a compassionate route for people to to enter into the UK. What was it like being a minister? You were a minister of sport, but you had other roles within the portfolio, didn't you? Loneliness was one. Yeah. So I had sport, tourism, heritage when I first started um, there. Um, it's always important to remember it in that order because, as Ed Basie pointed out, who was a fellow minister, sport, heritage and tourism has an entirely different acronym. 
Um, but um, uh, I also had gambling and then I had civil society, uh, I, the charity sector uh, and loneliness as well come into the brief. I loved it. I loved every sector of it. I don't regret resigning, but I miss huge parts of it. I miss working with the, the charity sector. I miss the loneliness brief. You know, I loved heritage and tourism, huge, you know, uh, contributors to our economy. Um, but of course, you know, sport has always been my love. Explain why you resign. Looking back now, how, how do you how do you view it? You say you don't regret it. Just talk us through that and the role that gambling played in that decision. So the um, we, we had made an announcement, um, a policy decision to cut the stake of fixed odd betting terminals, which were described as the sort of kind of casino games that effectively in our high street bookmakers um, the, the stake was £100. We'd made the policy decision to reduce it to £2. Um, this was in part because the spin cycle of these machines was 20 seconds, so you could effectively lose 300 quid in a minute um, on these machines. Um, so you gamble big, you could win big, but you could also lose big. Um, and they were... Um, creating a real problem in terms of addiction because of the casino style content, but also um, the, they were really sort of kind of centralized in some of the lower income communities. You know, I look at my own constituency and the bookmakers are not in my affluent areas, put it that way. So we'd made the decision um, in May and then we had um, the, the autumn statement and Philip Hammond had made a decision to delay the implementation uh, of the state reduction because suddenly it then became a treasury matter uh, from April until October. And that delay was just something that I and the campaigners and, and the, the families of victims uh, of gambling addiction, some of whom had taken their lives, um, just wouldn't tolerate. And, and um, uh, he stood firm and, uh, and I said, well, I wasn't going to justify this decision. So I resigned. And then ironically, they reversed the position within, well, days, really. Um, and so the state reduction did then come in in the April, uh, as was planned. So that was an example of standing up for something that you really cared about and you really believed in. Talk us through the psychology of it, the emotion of it, giving up something that you'd worked so hard to achieve, to be a minister in areas that you felt so that felt you felt really mattered. Sport matters, of course, then, but also is enorm brings enormous pleasure and enormous joy. So talk us through the decision making process where you decide to give that up. There was no internal dispute about it. Um, you know, I knew if the policy didn't change, then I wasn't going to stay. I mean, I wasn't going to justify something that I didn't agree with, especially as I'd sat down with people who had suffered from gambling addiction um, and had heard their traumatic stories. Um, and so I, I, you know, was pretty firm in my mind. And when I say I don't regret it, I don't regret it. There has never been a moment where I've thought, I'm I've missed out on something or um uh or if only I'd still been there or anything like that not not for a second you know I mean I still today bearing in mind I resigned um in well the end of October early November 2018 so four and a half nearly years on I still today get emails from people saying I saved their life 
because it forced the policy change. Um, you know, it's sort of my resignation was the spark that lit the fuse that changed policy. And and you know, and I I don't regret that. And if people want to see who I am, you know, what's it like to be Tracy Crouch as you started off with. You know, what you see is what you get. I don't do bullshit. I can't be bothered. Life is too short. Um, and so, you know, y- yes, there was a, it was a matter of principle and it was a matter of integrity, but it was also just a matter of just doing, you know, what was right. Um, so. See, that's why one of the things I find fascinating about you, Tracy, because you you are a party political person. You are lo- You are a loyalist. You, you, you mean you described yourself effectively as a tribalist, and yet when it came down to it, on something that you really cared about, you did stand there and say this far and no further, and you put your job on the line. Yeah, but it wasn't about policy; it was about implementation of policy. So we'd already won. I'd won the policy argument. It was about the delay in the implementation. So that, to me, isn't about anything. To it, it wasn't a, a rally against the tribe. You know, it was a. It was basically a rally against the bureaucracy. And um, so, yeah, so there was there was nothing sort of kind of anti-Tory about it. It was just like, get on with it. Stop faffing around. And thank goodness we did, because, of course, the following year, 2019, we spent the entire year completely clogged up with Brexit. And so, you know, had it not come in in April, I'm pretty damn sure it never would have come in. I'm curious to know whether you are friends with people from the other side, because it is possible, isn't it? You may be an absolute Tory loyalist or a Labour loyalist, and yet you can have friendships from across the aisle. And I I see you nodding. So as part of your answer, can you just help me to understand this? So politics can be, uh, you know, matters of life and death. You think of war, you think of various ways in which politics viscerally matters. And yet you can be friends with people who fundamentally disagree with you right of course you can i mean in your friendship circle are you only friends with people who are left-leaning well i'm married i'm I'm married to a conservative tracy as you know so but but so that's the thing i mean it would be incredibly insular to only surround yourself by people who agree with you i mean actually i just i see this my my job right as my job that's it. My job doesn't define me. It's my job. And, you know, I, and, and that's why I find it really weird that people find it odd when you have friendship with other people who are not in your same party because they're just doing their job. See, I don't quite, I don't quite buy that. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think this is so interesting. I don't quite buy that because at the one hand, you're telling me it doesn't define you. But on the other hand, your act of bravery, as a lot of people would see it, and selflessness, as it certainly was, in standing up for what you believed in and and, and giving up your ministerial role, that's not just a job in inverted commas. That it like cuts to the to the heart of who you are. As you said, if people want to know you and understand you, you know, that experience, it doesn't define you, but it's part of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, but surely who I am is also sort of kind of what I do in terms of, you know, work. It's like, you know, if if you talk about leadership or something like that, you know, it's like it's just part of the qualities of who you are. It's just all the bits that make you up. I mean, I yes, I, in answer to your question, I have lots of friends in the Labour Party. I have lots of friends in the Lib Party. I have lots of friends in the SNP. Now, some of that 
is because we've worked on cross-party things together. So actually we've created a friendship. Some of it's football. So, you know, I, I co-captain the parliamentary football team uh, with Alison McGovern, who's Labour, and Hannah Bardell, who's SNP. We play football together. I'll be playing football later on this evening with people that are not in my party. Have yeah. you played football with Keir Starmer? I have not played football with Keir Starmer, no. Who do you, who do you think is better at football, you or Keir Starmer? Sure. Um, Sorry, did you say you? Totally. <laughs> um, the, um, you know, so... so I, I, you know, I, I have loads of friends. I, I've been to um, funerals of Labour MPs. You know, the the um, there was a Labour MP called Paul Goggins, really lovely guy, so good. And we worked on a number of issues together. And one of the things that we worked on was a really complex piece of legislation called the mesothelioma uh, bill, horrible asbestos disease, um, uh, which I was working on when I worked in the city for Norwich Union, now Viva. So had a lot of insight into it. Um, and we'd been working on some cross-party um, amendments to the bill um, because actually cross-party always works more successfully than just single party. And um, uh, and he, he suddenly died um, while he was out running over Christmas. So I came in and tabled all of his amendments in my name so that they could be heard. Otherwise, they would have been lost. And uh, myself and a couple of Conservative colleagues travelled up to Manchester for his funeral. And, and it was extraordinary, you know. So, you know, yes, in answer to your question, we have lots of friends across political parties. Are you good at cooking? And if you have a dinner party, would you have a dinner party, first of all? And if you do have a dinner party, do you like to cook? Uh, Steve is a better cook, uh, in, actual, in, in part because he really enjoys doing it. I um, have gone vegetarian since I finished treatment, so I tend to cook my own food because Steve is not signed up to the vegetarian um, <laughs> way of life. So we actually end up having three meals at dinner time, uh, his dinner, my dinner and something beige for our seven year old son. And uh, so I am a really good cook of vegetarian things and he's a very good cook of meat things. What is the most enjoyable or most exciting sporting event you have ever gone to? Uh, the Super Bowl. Why? It was just a spectacle in terms of uh, event management. Um, it was minus 17. It was in Minnesota. It was, um, in terms of the way it is it is done, it's just incredible. But I mean, I'm really lucky. In fact, the only major sporting event I've not been to is a World Cup, Football World Cup men's I should say I've been to women's but um, I'm really lucky that I've been to pretty much every other major sporting event. I went three of the the football games in Brazil in 2014 but I was following the Argentina side around because that's how my friend got tickets and so we saw I think Argentina beat Switzerland 1-0, Argentina beat Belgium 1-0 in the quarterfinals and then Argentina draw 0-0 with Holland before winning on penalties in the semi-final we saw hardly any goals. We did see a messy goal, I think. But this was one of the highest scoring World Cups in history. I went all the way to Brazil and saw like two goals or something in normal time, <laughs> which is a bit disappointing. Having said that, I did go to the World Cup final cricket with my dad at Lords in 2019 when England won. And that was unutterably exciting. I don't know whether you remember the end, but I it was a super over. It was that day, though, right? Because um, it was uh, tennis I as well. Yeah. So I wasn't, I'd actually um, gone to the British Grand Prix and on the way back, we were listening to the cricket. Now, I'm trying to remember, actually, 
which sequence it was, whether or not we were listening to the cricket and then got back in time for the tennis. No, actually, I think we were listening to the tennis and then got back in time to watch it, the Super Over in the cricket. I mean, it, what a day. It was just sport. Like, it was just unbelievable. Anyway, final question. And and this is a sort of serious question, but it's, I, we mentioned loneliness. That was one part of your brief when you were a minister. And it's really important, isn't it, that we work on, on alleviating loneliness as, as a society. We know from the pandemic just how much of an impact loneliness can have on people. And it can affect all of us at different times, can't it? And so I just wondered whether you had any words, any reflections from your time being involved in that. And you're still involved in it, aren't you? Yeah, very much so. Um, it's one of those issues that was very difficult to kind of give up and walk away on. I mean, the important thing is, is loneliness is a natural emotion. So at some point, we all feel loneliness. It's not a bad thing. Often it can be a reminder of all the good things that stop us from being lonely. The point of concern is when it becomes acute and um, its health impacts are great. Um, lots of really good reports you know scientific academic reports into the into the health consequences of loneliness what it's really important that we do is one recognize it reduce the stigma and try and help facilitate reconnections back into communities into society into friendship groups that's where it becomes more challenging what is quite astonishing is who is experiencing loneliness when i first got elected into parliament i did do some stuff on loneliness but i very much focused it on the older uh, age group so always talked about it from the over 65 perspective one of the things that joe cox did which is why it became such a big issue and why her legacy lives on through the work on loneliness um is to show that it, do- it affects more than just older older people and now the statistics show that 16 to 24 year olds are more likely to be lonely than the over 65 year olds slightly changes as the ages get older of course there's an element of social isolation that comes into that as well because of physical mobility and so on but nonetheless you know 16 to 24 year olds experiencing acute levels of loneliness how do we how do we tackle that how do we connect people physically connect people rather than digitally connect people um you know senior professionals really lonely new dads as well you know especially those that go on you know share parenting for example all the all the groups out there quite often mother and baby um so there's all sort of little pinch points where people can feel lonely we're just going to make sure that we try and tackle those in a whole variety of ways it's not a one-size-fits-all um solution to it because there's not a one-size-fits-all uh problem And the other thing that's really important to remember is just because you're alone doesn't necessarily mean you're lonely in the same way that you can be in a family or or a social network and still be incredibly lonely. Um, And uh, so, yeah, it's a really interesting subject. I was pleased that when we um, announced my appointment as, as the world's first minister for loneliness, nobody mocked it. You didn't get the sort of kind of Daily Mail headline or, you know, taking the mickey. We had global interest, still get global interest. I'm about to do a, uh, a call with somebody from the Washington Post. Um, uh, you know, so it is still really, really fascinating subject. And because we talked about loneliness and we talked about gambling, we talked about challenging things. I just want people to know that there's, there is, there are people to talk to. There is someone to talk to. 
And you can reach out to the Samaritans on 116123. That's 116123. Tracy Crouch, it's been really interesting, as I knew it would be, asking you 20 questions. Thank you very much for your 20 answers. Thank you for having me.